Now tonight, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 20. We went verse by verse through chapters 20 and 21 on Tuesday, and we're really getting to that part of Samuel where David is being pursued by Saul, and it's going to be the dominant theme through the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. And it's this time where David, he's been anointed to be the future king of Israel. Saul has been rejected by the Lord to be the current king of Israel, but both factors are at work at the same time. And Saul is the father-in-law of David, because Micah's daughter married David. He gave his daughter to David. And it's a time period of about 10 years where David is just being refined by these adversities and trials and tribulations that are brought on to him by his father-in-law and God has a bigger plan and purpose in that not the least of which is David was led to write many of the psalms that we really enjoy that have comforted us in our darkest days and most difficult times he wrote many of those psalms during this time and so that's our background and as we come to chapter 20 Saul is now clearly against David and it's coming out in the open, and yet they're still functioning within family, but David senses how close it is to how life-threatening it is. And remember, David and Jonathan, Saul's son, are the very best of friends, true friendship at the highest level at the same time. So now we come forward, and I want to draw your attention to verse 4, excuse me, verse 3, where as David feels he needs to flee the palace, and he's with his good friend Jonathan, Saul's son, he says that... uh, your father certainly knows that I found favor in your eyes that we're friends. And uh, so he's out to kill me, and, he, and, and he's not going to let you know this, lest you be grieved by it. And then he says this statement. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. David, at an early time in his life, in his 20s, realized this great reality, the mortality of our life. It's very important. The sooner we realize this, the better. Some people have close death, near-death experiences when they're younger, maybe in child years or teenage years, they survived a car accident or maybe they had leukemia or something and they, their body fought through it and they were healed and things like that. There's different things for young people that might make them realize the reality of death. They might have lost a parent or a loved one under various circumstances at an early age. So again, David is in his early 20s. He's maybe still collegiate age at this point in time. And he comes to this grand conclusion that he realizes the brevity of life. Even today at the memorial, Eric Estes, speaking of his wife, just kept telling the audience, and there's a lot of people here, it's all so short. It all goes by so fast. And of course, Solomon, David's son in the Old Testament, said life is but a vapor. And then James in the New Testament said the exact same thing. Life is but a vapor. It gets an Old Testament, New Testament, double emphasis, a thousand years apart, that life, it's just so fast. It just goes so fast. And sooner or later, we have to come to terms that we're passing through, and we're going to have to face, we have to face our own mortality. Now, some people step into eternity without ever even realizing their mortality, like it just happens so fast, and I had no chance to even realize, like, my life is short, and now I'm, uh, it's over. But certainly as people get older, and you attend memorial services for different people that you love as you're growing up, you begin to understand this. I remember being a teenager in Carlsbad, there at Tamarack Beach where I grew up surfing. I remember one of the local surfers in the early 70s was older than me. He was 16, 
And he died in an auto accident when his car went in the lagoon there by, Carl's, by the May Company Mall there in Carlsbad, the old mall right off of Highway 78 and 5. And I remember like it really was stunning to me like that he wasn't going to be in the lineup surfing the next week. That was the first thing I was just like, wow, like, I just can't believe that he's gone, that that really happened. And since that time in my life, and many of you have your own experiences, we watch you know, our grandparents step into eternity and, and other friends and family and, and all these different things that happen. And you get to my point in life and our point for many of us, you live 50, 60 years. So many people you grew up with, you love, and they passed away for various reasons, this, particularly when you get in the 50s because a lot of men have heart attacks in their 50s and just stuff like that. It's like, wow, like it happens. So it's really important that we do realize the brevity of life because Paul told us, the Apostle Paul, to redeem the time for the days are evil. So the sooner we realize how short life is, the better it is for us that we can really value the greatest asset of life, and that is time. Time is our greatest asset. And the older you get, it takes on greater value. It takes on much greater value because you realize we're all on the clock, but when you're getting older, you realize like you really are on the clock and you want to redeem the time. The key is to keep living and realize the value of your life and make it count, which is what Paul had in mind when he wrote that to the Ephesians. So here at an early age, David makes a statement. He realizes that someone wants to kill him. And he realizes, almost like a soldier in World War II, like a young soldier in his 20s or maybe any young soldiers in human history, that, uh, well, Robert E. Lee, the great general from the South, said this, that those young men most eager to go to war are those who've never been. And so, so many young people, they go off to war, and then they realize, like, wow, if I get out of here, it's going to be an amazing thing. David realized early on that his life was very brief, and he, and he needed to value it, make it count, and fulfill it. And so there's something there for all of us tonight as we consider this statement. Truly, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So he includes his best friend and the Lord in the statement. Now, this verse kind of sets in motion the events of the coming chapters. In fact, when we study these texts on Tuesday night, it really just seems to be the undergirding verse of the experiences of David as he goes forward with Saul persecuting him and pursuing him. But in this balance, both for David in the text and even in our life, the reality that we could step into eternity any given day is, is there, and it's a reality we need to live with. Because with the Lord, it's always today. Give us this day our daily bread. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you do not harden your heart, but you repent, it'll be good, be well with you, as it says in Hebrews, quoting the psalmist. So with God, it's always today, right? We can't, we can't change yesterday, and we're, we're not promised tomorrow. So with the Lord, it's etat din, that's Russian for this day. It's this day, or estadia in Spanish. It's this day. We need to be in the moment, and we need to have a plan for the day. We need to have vision for the day. We need to know what the most important thing of the day is. What is the next thing of the day? We need to value it. We need to treasure it. We need to protect it and guard it. We can't let people steal our day. We need to recognize that it belongs to the Lord, and we need to let the Lord lead our day. Because you can steal your day with distractions, and human beings will steal your day with forced imposing themselves on you. And you have to learn early on in life as you're protecting your time, to recognize what is the Lord and not the Lord so you can say yes to the Lord and no to things that are not the Lord. And you young people know this. The older you get, the wiser you get that no is a very important word in your language to use because you need to be able to say no to things that are not the Lord 
that means you need to recognize what is the Lord. So the value of the day, but also realizing that we can't live in the panic of the day either because we know that people, people can get so fearful in the moment that they could step into eternity, they can't grasp, fulfill, or take the initiative on time. We watched with the whole thing the last couple of years where some people are so fearful, they just were not able to just live their life. And you can see the carnage of it still to this day. There are so many people that are just crippled by fear and they can't just go out and live life. I'm going to live life. If we live, we live. If we die, we die. I'm like Jonathan is armor bearer. Like there's a life to be lived. And I'm not foolish, but I'm not going to live in fear. But I'm going to live with the sense that the Lord could come back today because he said, watch and be ready. But I'm also going to live with the sense that write the vision, make it plain so he who reads can run with it. So there's a, the, the significance and the, the power of today, but there's the vision and the direction for tomorrow. So some people are so set on tomorrow, they can't fulfill, fulfill today. It's always some dream. And the Bible says a matter accomplished is better than one spoken of. Because we can all talk about what we're going to do tomorrow, but action is the greatest energy in the human experience that, or as we say, walk the talk. You, you need to walk the talk. You need to put it in action. You need to make things happen. And people that take the initiative, they get things done. And they tend to do well in life. So it's this balance of, this could be my last day, but I may have many days, for the days were fashioned for us as yet there was none, and they're more for me than the sands of the sea. And you knew them all before I was yet born, Psalm 139. So we have this day, and I'm in the middle of thousands of days that I've had, and so are many of you. But we don't know how many days are in front of us, but we need to have a vision for where we're going, what's in front of us, that each day will be redeemed till we're done. So we can't be crippled to fulfill today. We need to have a vision for tomorrow. It can't be the sky is falling every day like chicken little syndrome, but we need to know the Lord could return for me or for humanity and we need to be about the Father's business. That's why it's such a balance with Jesus. He said, be watching and be ready for his return. But then he said, who's that faithful servant whom his master finds when he returns? He's looking for people that are faithful and doing what he's called them to do with their life when he does return. So it's that balance. And we live this life, we live the balance of the urgency of today with the vision for tomorrow. And it's, 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 a, it's a delicate balance. And we live it well, we live life and we experience life. That's what David has to do. He's been anointed to be the king of the future, but there's nothing in his life that makes him feel like a king right now. He's sensing his own mortality and he makes a statement. So now as we kind of go through the rest of this book in the coming weeks and the adventures of David with Saul pursuing him, we're going to see so many powerful life lessons because it's the making of a man of God or we could say the making of a woman of God the value of the day, the vision of tomorrow, and knowing that God has spoken something over you like when Samuel anointed him to be king, and yet he's already dodged Saul's spear trying to kill him on more than one occasion. His life is confusing. Life is messy. Life isn't having it figured it out. It's just knowing who's on the throne and keeping your eyes on him and doing the best you can every day to go forward and staying in the moment while having a vision for tomorrow. But truly... As the Lord lives, there is but a step between me and death. As it was for him, so it is for us. And so in these next couple chapters that we read, in this chapter, the remaining part of it, and the next chapter, is a story where David makes a covenant with Jonathan, and then Saul attacks Jonathan for defending David. Then David has to flee once and for all. It's established he's firmly a fugitive. He's on the run. He goes to the, the priest there in, in Nod, and then he ends up in the Philistine territory with Philistine kings, 
it's really a, it's kind of an agitating couple chapters here. But in it, you realize the statement is so true that he's about one step from eternity. And yet he's living life with so much he can't control while trying to become the person he's meant to be in the midst of all these things, which sounds like life for all of us, doesn't it? I mean, there's so many things we can't control. But we can control what we choose to do with each day, who we choose to serve, and there's self-determination over who rules over our heart and our mind. And if it's the Lord, the chaos around you, he's going to give you peace in the storm. If it's not the Lord, you're just going to be yanked to and fro by everything, as it says in James, let not that person ask, because that double-minded person will be tossed to and fro like the waves of the sea. So David firmly had that heart for God in all of his chaos, one step from eternity, and yet going forward toward his destiny as maybe the greatest king that ever lived in the human experience. Now, in this journey of his life, there's just different seasons. In, in 2 Samuel, we'll get to, when he's older. <laughs> the life of David truly is amazing. And this is the young, life, the young adult life of David. And in this, uh, there's things that jump out to me that, that stand out to me that are life lessons for us to reflect on tonight. It's sort of, a, sort of like a little bit of a buffet. It's a little bit of a buffet of applications tonight, almost like a verse by verse, but not quite. The first thing I draw your attention to is verse 15 with this background is when David was with Jonathan and Jonathan's like, no, my dad doesn't want to kill you. My dad's just got issues. And, and, uh, but then David said, no, he's, he's going to want to kill me. And, and so they came up with a plan to determine whether Saul really wanted to kill him. But in the midst of that, Jonathan and David, it says this in verse 15, Jonathan said to David, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. Later on, we read in verse 23, and they're wrapping up their conversation, the matter of which you and I have spoken, indeed the Lord be between you and me forever. So they made a covenant, and they have a forever friendship and a forever covenant. The highest friendship level imaginable. And the Lord is in the center of it. Indeed the Lord be between you and me. Then later on, in the very last verse of the chapter, verse 42, after Saul had tried to kill Jonathan, after David for sure has to flee, Jonathan says to David, go in peace since we've both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, may the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So then he left. So look at this. They make a covenant between the two of them. They're the best of friends. They put the Lord in that covenant and then they extend the covenant to future generations this is true friendship. And as you get older, you'll understand these friendships. As I get older, personally, I don't only think, like, what can I do for people I love that I serve the Lord with? But I think, what can I do for their children? What can I do to bless them? Now, the greatest thing we can do is give faith in the things of the kingdom. But I really want to bless certain people that I know have done so much for the kingdom of God and forsaken so much. So when I think of, like, a good friend like Jim O'Connor in Virginia Beach who went to Vermont with me, so many years ago and took that step of faith, leaving everything he knew to go as the only deacon to be a part of the church, eating Bisquick for a week and no one else knowing that's all they ate as they stayed in a motel looking for work, a life of faith. And he worked at McDonald's. He delivered newspapers at four in the morning, Burlington Free Press. And all these things he did. And when we came back from Vermont, he stayed another seven years and pastored that church. And that church still exists. Now, he had children, Sarah and 
Lydia of Thyatira, we call her because, you know, Lydia of Thyatira in the Bible. And I've met his children. Now they're almost, well, they're all adults. And one's married, there's grandkids. And I have to tell you, I look at Jim O'Connor's kids on Instagram and I think, I, I want to do things for them. Do you, can you relate to this? Can you relate to this? Like, I really, like, I really, I want to do something for his children. I want to do something for him because he believed in me and believed in the vision and he forsook everything he knew to totally uproot his family and plant a church in Vermont with Crazy Joy Brand in 1995. And we did it. We, you know, fortune favors the brave. With the kingdom, we did it. And God did it. And we have, like, merit badges, like Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts that show, like, hey, church plant New England. That's a hard one to get, by the way. That's an eagle badge. It goes for Eagle Scout. You don't give those away. You got to earn those. You got to take huge steps of faith to do that. Get that one. Work minimum wage in your 30s for Jesus. That's another big merit badge right here. And he did it all. Work at McDonald's. Go from being uh, a warehouse manager with 20 employees to working at McDonald's, being told what to do by 18-year-olds. There's a huge merit badge right there for that one in the kingdom of God. And I want to do things for his children. I cannot talk with Jim O'Connor for two years, and we talk on the phone. We can laugh for three hours. Finally, I just have to stop the phone call. These are real friendships, worship generation, body of Christ. In the journey of being one step from eternity, we want to build up those relationships that are headed for eternity. We want to make covenants with people in our heart that we're going to be their friends and we're going to be loyal to them from here to eternity and we're going to stand by them in the best of times and the worst of times. We need to build up true friendships, eternal friendships. And we need to recognize and rejoice in friends of the past like a Jim O'Connor and we need to nurture friends of the present like a Sam Coca and we need to build up new friendships of the future that are around the corner. Your best friends may be the ones that minister to you in assisted living when you're 90. That might be the best friend you ever have, that person that shows up and just ministers Christ to you or just listens to your stories because they're smart enough to know that 90-year-olds have stories to tell and they're worth listening to. But friendship, the human experience is meant to be shared. Friendship in marriage, friendship with your kids as they grow up. I have great friendships with all my children, and you should too. They don't always do what I want them to do. In fact, a lot of times they don't even close what I want them to do. That's not the point of it. I love my children. I'm always going to be their dad, and I'm their friend, but I'm their father first, but there's deep friendships. And it goes on to your grandchildren. At that memorial on Monday for Ethel and Sr., when the grandkids got up, and they all got up and shared about Grandma, and they were just cut to the heart. So you have those great friendships with your grandparents, but then they step into eternity about the time you're 25, no matter what. They share a quarter of the journey with you. Your parents may be half. But the grandparents, a lot of people, the first person you love that steps into eternity is a grandparent. And you go through high school, and then you like some of those friends you never have again anymore, but some are true friends. They're, so, they're really so few, but if you make yourself friendly, you will make yourself many friends. Like it says in the Proverbs, they have friends, one must be friendly. And if you choose to make friends, you'll, you'll have friends. And of all the equity and assets you can have on planet Earth is not great friendship, the highest and greatest of them all, to share the journey. Not with like yes men or yes women who just say what you want to hear, but real friends, true friends. Friends that have your back. Friends that tell you what you don't want to hear 
But you need to hear it because the Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend and deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. True friends, real friends. Friends that are there in the high and the low. A lot of us feel like we want to do it without our, like a lot of us want to say, well, I can do this on my own, but you, you, you really, you can't. And it's sad if you think you can. We establish a friendship with the Lord vertically through Jesus Christ as our mediator and the best friend we'll ever have. And then we extend friendship to others. And we make ourselves friends for other people, and then they become our friends. And when you come to church and you're part of church and you interact with other believers, you build these eternal friendships and you begin to make covenants. Jim O'Connor and I do not have a covenant. We don't need to. We're a living covenant. We don't need to say, you look out for my kids and I'll look out for yours. We would. I know Jim O'Connor would do anything for my kids as I would for his. Anything within my means and power. So as we realize we're one step from eternity, we realize how important it is to build up friendships in time that transcend eternity. Today when Scott Cunningham was here doing the memorial, I just love Scott Cunningham so much. And we walked out here to start this memorial today, to do Christy Estes Memorial. I thought, man, God gave me the worship generation name with Scott Cunningham at Fallbrook High School in April of 2000. In that high school Christian club, Warriors for Christ. And here we are now. Some friends, you're around all the time like that, but others, they come and go, and then they come back, and then it's just the way it is. But listen, because Jonathan is a true and loyal friend. David and Jonathan were like-minded. They were men of faith. They took steps of faith. Jonathan's dad, Daddy Ball, is insisting that his son's going to be the starting quarterback for the future of Israel. But Jonathan realizes, no, David's a starting quarterback. He's a better quarterback, using terminology we might relate to in our world. Saul's ultimate daddy ball. My son's going to be the king. My son's going to be the king. Jonathan's like, man, dad, David's the guy. And Jonathan was comfortable with that. True friendship recognizes the calling of the Lord on someone else's life and respects it. They're not envious of it or jealous of it or insecure in it. They rejoice in it. That's true friendship. True friendship can rejoice in your friend's success in spite of your own failures or at the expense of your advancement that you rejoice that the Lord has advanced them. Because a man or a woman can receive nothing unless it comes from the Lord in the first place, so why wouldn't we rejoice over the exaltation of, but from the Lord of friends that we have? And there's a friend that sticks closer to a brother and we stand by each other in the different seasons. And in Jonathan's case, when they, when they made this covenant and they're saying goodbye, they never really were going to be able to hang out together again. They had that season where they're in the palace together, like just like busting up, just being like, dude, your dad, I know, man, I don't know what to say. Like, you just, like those things that you do when you're young and you're, you're young men and you love the Lord and, and you can just laugh and you can do like scissor rock paper and just be busting up in the man cave or whatever. It's precious memories for a lifetime and then there's a day it's over. No more hanging out with Jonathan. It just can't happen. You pray for Jonathan, but you don't get to hang out with Jonathan anymore. Life is like that. So it's super important to seize the moment of the friendship, value the friendship, go deep in the friendship with the Lord, put the Lord in the friendship, and and value it so much that you want the blessings of your friendship for your friends upon them and even to their children's children. That's That's a life to live, just to be reminded of that. You can't take that one step into eternity with too many friends by your side, or maybe not by your side, but that you've sown with your life. So friendship bountifully. 
because before David had 30 mighty men that changed the world, he had a good friend, and his name was Jonathan, his best friend in the palace of the great King Saul. So yeah, you're one step from eternity, but it doesn't mean we don't live the life and build the friendships. You know, when I pastor in Virginia, something very interesting about Virginia and military families, because I'm a military brat, I understand this. I grew up on bases. We moved around on bases all along. My dad was a career Marine. You have friends, and then you move. You don't have those friends anymore. And when I got to Virginia Beach to start the church in 1991, it was during Desert Shield, which became Desert Storm. And all these military families and all these men were gone in deployment, and then they all came back. But I, I was a little slow to recognize this, but as the church grew numerically, I began to realize that the U.S. government would ensure that, that was, the church stayed fluid because people would be redeployed and moved on. And the deans would head to Iwakuni, Japan, and these people go here, and these people go there, and they get deployed there, and these Navy SEALs are now going to go down here to Pensacola. And you realize, like, they're all coming and going. And what I found to be a great challenge as a pastor of a primarily military church is getting people to make friendships. Because friendship hurts. It's hard to say goodbye to friends. And military families, they tend to kind of keep the guard up sometimes because you'll make friends, but you don't want to get too close. So when you get redeployed and you get sent somewhere else, it's going to rip your heart out to say goodbye to these people. But you can't be afraid to do that. You can't, you can't be afraid to live and do that. You can't be afraid to experience that friendship. Don't make the pastor get up and exhort everybody to be friends. Be a friend. And if you're one step from eternity or one step from a deployment or one step to be you know, sent somewhere else, then that's okay. But be in the moment. So bountifully friendship of the covenant in Jesus' name. Because we are all one step from eternity. And the friends we make in time in with the Lord, they're the friends of eternity. We're going to glory. And so friendships to get glory. Now another thing we see. So it didn't stop him from living and having friends. And experiencing the hurt and heartache of friendship. Because 2 Samuel chapter 1 David is so gutted with the news of the death of Jonathan and Saul that it's an entire chapter where he's just sobbing and weeping because he can't just go to Jerusalem and see, see them. They're gone. And he'll have to become king on his own without his best friend by his side. 30 mighty men, yes. Now he's in his 30s. It's a different life than when he was in his 20s. New friends, different friends. It never stays the same, but friendship is everything. And the loyalty of true friends is very powerful. But also in this one step from the grave is the reality of, of enemies. We've talked about this. You're going to have enemies because you're a follower of Christ. Jesus said, do not be surprised if the world hates you. It hated me first. The moment you give your life to Christ, there are certain people whose political views and ideologies and worldviews or world religions make them diametrically opposed to you. You're not opposed to them. Jesus is for you. We're not against anybody. Christ on the cross is for everybody. But we have enemies. So there is the reality of enemies. And you might have enemies because people don't like the way you look. Pastor Chuck more than once there at Calvary Coast Mesa talked about how we had people who didn't like him just because he was Pastor Chuck and he didn't have hair. He said, you know, there's some people who don't like bald people. And they don't like me. There's some people who don't like attractive people because they are jealous of attractive people. There's some people who don't like you at all just because they don't like you. The color of your skin, your gender, what you do for a living, how you laugh, how you don't laugh, how you smile, how you frown, they just don't like you. 
They might be your neighbor. They might be relatives. They might be in-laws. <laughs> and you can't make them like you. And more importantly, you can't get them off, make them, let them get you off your game being who you are. You're one slip, slippery step from the grave. One step from the grave. You got a life to live, and you don't have time to stop living because people throw spears at you. Now, you learn when someone throws a spear at you, when you go back in the, in the king's palace, you'll probably look, keep an eye out for that spear. That's just wisdom. Knowledge, understanding. Knowledge, that guy throws spears. Understanding, if I get hit by that spear, I'm dead. Wisdom, look out for the guy throwing the spears. But you can't make Saul stop throwing spears. So you have to figure out how to live for the Lord, trust the Lord with the anointing oil on your head from Samuel the prophet, and live your life to the fullest, one step from the grave, in spite of the man throwing spears at you. When you're hiding in a field for three days, you can't make the man in the palace say, oh, I actually really like my son-in-law, David. If he's going to call his son, Jonathan, the son of a harlot, and throw his spirit, his own son, you can't make that guy be normal. You can't make him be rational or reasonable. You just need to make sure that his spirit is outside your wheelhouse. That's what you make sure of. In the human experience, there are people like Saul who are going to throw spears at you. For whatever reason, they decide to. Your faith, your appearance, your ethnicity, your economic class, anything. Human beings throw spears at each other. And Saul threw spears. But in dealing with enemies, we have to fall back what Jesus says to love and forgive our enemies. Life is too short as a vapor to harbor bitterness toward our enemies. Now, we all know it's not an easy fix. We all wish there's a button. It's like, oh, no longer hurt by my enemies. Push this button. There's no pain. No, there's pain. When people try and steal your wealth, destroy your name and the credibility of who you are and everything you've worked for, come in, they want to run the company that you've ran for 30 years, and they know what they're doing. They're going to be gone in six months anyways, but you got to put up with it. Yeah, that will push a button with you. And you'd like to have a button that you could push like, hey, just forgive them, whether it was a deep wound or a shallow wound. But the Lord has that, that, that cure. The book of Jeremiah talks about the healing balm of Gilead. And the ultimate healing balm of Gilead is the Holy Spirit coming upon our lives and working inside our heart, allowing us to forgive and let go of other people. Life is too short to hold bitterness. And it's also too short to be crippled in the wilderness worrying about what the guy in the palace is doing with his spear. You've got to live your life in the wilderness in your 20s, and you can't be consumed with what this guy who controls your universe is doing and plotting in the palace behind your back with his spear and his malice against you. It's a horrible thing to wake up with malice in your heart toward another human being. It'll destroy you. It will always destroy you. So as much as I'd exhort us to make friends, I'd also tell us, hey, if you need to forgive people on April 30th, if it's hockey, you know, hockey is three periods, right? It's in the first period tonight. Little horn. You know, when they all skate off and they're all going on their skates, walking to the locker room at the end of the first period in hockey. That's what April 30th is, a third of the year. We're all like, Let's, we're going in. It's, it's break time. We're going in. And what do you do when you go and you think about it? So there's a think about it study tonight, a third of the way through 2022. We didn't know what 2022 was going to bring us, did we? We all, everyone started out really sick in January. 
Well, here we are. We got a war in Europe. We got all kinds of stuff going on. We got a stock market crashing. <laughs> so, hey, skates on, big pads. Go to the locker room, think about it, see what the coach says, Coach Jesus. No room for malice toward anyone. We have to forgive. So if tonight, right now, the Holy Spirit's telling you you need to forgive somebody, it may not be automatic, but you need to be aware of it and you need to go after it. And you need to recognize that you're vulnerable right there, strengthen the walls of Jerusalem, if you will, and forgive that person and be aware to forgive that person. I've said this many, many times. You know when you've forgiven someone, if you run into them at Target or Whole Foods and you have no bitterness and you're not afraid to walk down the aisle and see them and give them a hug. That's when you know you're free. You don't want to see them in the parking lot at Albertsons and go, oh, I'm not doing this, and just drive away. You just, Jesus, Jesus called Judas friend when he kissed him and betrayed him. We can't make people like us. And we can't live in fear of men because the fear of men is a snare. But we can purpose in our heart to forgive our enemies, to love on them, and to get from here to the end of the journey when we do step one step into eternity to not have that malice. When I was with my father-in-law before he stepped into eternity during the first year of COVID and we were able to go visit him because he was going to pass and I was there with him I said, Jesus is going to come. You're going to see him. Like, you're laying here. Billy's going to come. He's going to come in the room. He's coming for you. He's probably coming tonight. So pre- prepare to meet your maker. Like, literally. Like, I mean, the truth is the truth, right? Truth is truth. And when I'm in a situation where I speak like that, I just think, I can't possibly have, I don't want to be in that position with any malice toward anyone. Do you? Do you? When, when God sends a messenger to you at that moment, do you want to sit there and think, People that you never forgave and they're already gone and you can't ask for forgiveness or you need to ask forgiveness from them or you just need to forgive them. Like, you want to be free. And if you're free today, you'll be free tomorrow. Or if at least you know where you're vulnerable and you're letting God work on it today, you'll be better off on it tomorrow. You'll be proactive and not stumble in to bitterness and wrath and malice. But you're like, no, we just... The Bible tells us to take every thought captive and obedient to Christ, which means it's capable of being done because God wouldn't tell us to do it if we couldn't do it. It's self-determination. And I know I'm vulnerable toward these people. And so I know, I like this. There's, because the scary thing about Spears is, you got one too. <laughs> you got one too. And when you feel bitterness and malice and anger towards someone, you're like, oh, and the devil's like, hey, here's your spear. Try it on, pick it up. Yeah, I give a little javelin action. You know, like, hey, this is what they're saying at the palace. Look, here's your spear. He throws a spear, you throw a spear. But what separates us from the world and from being the animal kingdom in Jesus' name by the blood of the the lamb is the ability supernaturally by the grace of God to forgive and live with malice toward none. And that's how we have to be. And I believe David was very much that way. Because when the news came that Saul was dead, he didn't rejoice. He wrote a song and wept. That's a beautiful thing. So enemies are real and we need to forgive them. And we can't be paralyzed by them, by their threats, by the fears they'd impose upon us, whether they're government or family, estranged family or whatever. We just cannot live that way. We have to be free to live by faith. Which brings us to chapter 21. In chapter 21, 
as David is fleeing from Saul, he comes to uh, Ahimelech the priest, there where the tabernacle is, and he's hungry, he doesn't have anything, he, he asks for uh, food, it's a great, it's, we study this in detail on Tuesday, but they have the showbread, and the showbread is religious bread, and uh, the priest goes, oh man, you, you, you can't eat the showbread, David's like, the bread's common, this is bread, and of course Jesus mentions this passage in the Gospel of Matthew, where he talked about that the Pharisees missed the importance of mercy and compassion, which is what David found in this story. So when Jesus interprets this passage for us in the New Testament, he's shown us that God did approve of David, God was with David, and God blessed David, saying, it's just bread. Like, stop being religious. This is the real deal. It's bread. We need food. And they're like, hey, had the men been with women? If they haven't been with women for three days, that's at least good. You know, they've got some purity there. Let's just go with that. Yeah, they're all, we're all good. We haven't seen our wives in three days. So everything's good. Everything's good. It's just bread. And David said, it's, it. he goes, in effect, it's just bread. It's just bread. So he gets the food. God provides for him. And there, he's looking at his life. He's not sure where he's going. He's not sure what he's doing. Another enemy, Dog the Edomites there, who is in charge of the finances. When you're in charge of the herds of Saul... That means you're a stockbroker. You're his investor. You get cows that make more cows, sheep that make more sheep, goats that make more goats, healthy goats, striped goats, speckled goats. Dog the Edomite is not an Israelite, but he's smart with money and business. And kings love people that are smart with money and business. And he works for Saul. And Dog the Edomite sees David, and David's a threat to his brokerage firm. He's a threat to his commissions. And Dog the Edomite is a very bad man, and we'll read about him on Tuesday, a week from Tuesday in the next chapter. He'll kill priests. He'll kill anybody anything gets in his way because Dog bows to his wealth, and it's never enough. But in the midst of this, David's just trying to figure out, what am I doing in life? He's going to be drooling on his chin, on his beard, before this chapter's done amongst the Philistines because he doesn't know what to do. He's one set from eternity, and he's lost his compass. The Lord is his only compass. And he's like, Abimelech's afraid. He's afraid. Everyone's afraid. Saul's made everybody afraid. Dog's going to do this. The Edomite. Man, it's just bread. Can we just eat the bread? It's just bread. Yeah, you're right. It's just bread. And he's there, the man with the heart for God, the teenager who, who fought the bear and the lion, fought Goliath. All league MVP, everything. And he's a, like the lowest point of his life, the man he loved, Saul, because it says that he loved Saul earlier on when he came to the palace. He was the worship leader for Saul. He got fired, th- spears thrown at him. He's no longer allowed to be with his best friend. He can't be with his wife, Michael, Saul's daughter. He doesn't have his wife, he doesn't have his best friend, he doesn't have his boss. He didn't even have food. He is one step from eternity, just like all of us. Paul the Apostle said, you know, where he says, I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. It's a beautiful verse. We often think about like, yeah, we can win the Super Bowl or something. But it really means I can get by with much or little. I've learned to abound into a base. And I've learned that I therefore can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. The context is like, I've owned it all and I've lost it all. And I've learned Jesus is over the top, the highest level. He's in the lowest valley. He's got it. That's what David's learning here. But in the midst of this uncertainty... He says in verse 8 to Ahimelech, 
Is there not on hand a spear or a sword? For I have bought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business requires haste. And of course, David's lying about all this. So the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, then take it, for there is no other except that one here. The only sword around here is the sword of Goliath that you captured. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. Man, what a profound statement. This could have been the whole message. There's none like it. Yeah, you think? In all Israel, there's no sword like the sword of Goliath. Make no mistake. That's not any sword. That's the sword of Goliath. And that's not any person asking for a sword. That's David who saved the nation of Israel when he killed the giant and cut off his head with that sword. That sword is the flashpoint of the apex of the high tide mark of the greatest act of faith that David has had in his life up to this point in time, most likely. I mean, killing a bear is a big deal. Killing a lion is a big deal. Killing the giant in front of the entire nation, that might be a bigger deal. And remember, in the story we saw last week, Goliath is is probably nine feet tall. His armor is 150 pounds. And he says, I'm going to cut your head off and feed you to the birds. And David goes, no, I'm going to one-up you. I'm going to cut your head off and feed your entire army to the birds. Man, the faith, the courage, the conviction, the character, the power of purity, the power of faith in David's life that day when he ran at Goliath with five stones and a shepherd's staff is all time. It's just all time. If you're going to the Hall of Fame of great people in human history who live by faith, we're going to the David exhibit. And we're going to go see the five stones, the shepherd's staff, and the sword of Goliath. Man, that's the taunting of the world. That's human power, that sword. And when we live by faith, we, we take that captive. The earth is the Lord's everything there in it. That's why you never worry about losing everything, because you leave behind anyways. So what if you lose it? You're going to lose it when you step into eternity. So be faithful, two, four, five, ten, sow it, and keep sowing, and then step into eternity. We know one needs to panic about houses aren't affordable, inflation's 20%. Listen, it all gets stuck here. So 350,000 people stepped into eternity today, and they left their wealth behind. And the earth is the Lord's everything they're in it. He redistributes it. If he wants to give you houses, he'll give you houses. If he doesn't, he'll take your house. So live by faith and learn that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. But by all means, go get Goliath's sword. What I like about the sword is it wasn't enshrined in David's room at the palace. Like, what if it was on display? Of course, when you work for Saul, you don't display Goliath's sword in the, in the same house. That's not going to go over too well with the in-laws. Because Saul, of course, didn't go get the sword himself. But like the woman grabbing Jesus' tassel with the flow of blood, that was her flashpoint of faith. She touched his tassel, and healing went out. Power went out of Jesus to heal her when she touched his tassel. There are certain things that are flashpoints of faith. Moses with the second set of the Ten Commandments, that's a flashpoint of faith. There's just there's certain things. When I went to Israel 30 years ago, and Pat Robertson paid for it, which is pretty cool, I was there for seven days, in the garden of Gethsemane, I didn't know if it was kosher or not. I grabbed a little stone. Because Jesus said on the day of the trumpet entry, if they don't cry out, these rocks would cry out. And I grabbed a little stone. 
and it's on my windowsill. With the Israel coffee cup, I got on the same trip that has a crack, so you can't use it anymore. But I look at that Israel coffee cup every day, and it just reminds me how it was a great memory. I went to Israel. Pat Robertson paid for it. And that little stone, it's on my counter. It's a little teeny stone. And years ago, I wrote really small, Jesus. Because Jesus is his name. And the stones will cry out, Jesus. Worthy is the lamb, Revelation 5. But the stones will cry out. And I got that little teeny stone. Now, I got a rock from Little Round Top, where Chamberlain's 20th Maine held the, the left flank at Gettysburg on day two and saved the nation. I got that with Timmy. He was in sixth grade. We were doing a youth conference, a youth camp. I went to, we went to, went to Gettysburg. It was a little, mount, a little round top, the left flank, the bayonet charge, one of the famous stories of American history. I grabbed a stone. I'm like, hey, right here, 150 years ago, these men stood, ran out of ammo, and fought to save our nation. Chamberlain, who became governor of Maine for four terms, he held the left flank, and the country held together. If that flank falls, the Confederates march on D.C., and we're two countries. I got that, too. These are little things, little things that remind me of great acts of courage or moments with my kids. In my Bible, I have this. Well, this is from my mom's little prayer book. It's still in this Bible. <laughs> I've got my, I've, I voted on the recall. <laughs> it's there. This is my mom's prayer journal. But look at this one. This is the best right here. These are like the swords of Goliath. Earlier this year, I dropped off my granddaughter at Awanas in Florida. And that's a little tag they put on her at Calvary Chapel Vero Beach. And off she went to her classroom. Just makes you want to cry, doesn't it? All you grandparents, so beautiful. Clementine Baran. That's my granddaughter that lives in Vero Beach, Florida. And I dropped her off at Awanas like I did with my kids at North Coast Calvary 30 years ago. Yeah. These are your swords of Goliath. These are your flashpoints of faith. It might be Clementine's sticker, that moment that you lived, that, that day you lived and took your granddaughter to church and you lived to see that day. So every Goliath sword God ever gives you, every human experience he gives you, you live by faith, and you grab that stone from the Garden of Gethsemane. You grab that stone from Little Round Top, because that's a special day with you and your son, Timmy, when he's still a boy in the age of innocence in sixth grade, and he plays Little League. The sword of Goliath is the flashpoint of God's past faithfulness. The sword of Goliath is the promise of a better future because God who's faithful in the past will be faithful in the future because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what it is. And the moment Ahimelech brought that sword out and David grabbed that sword, it was a reminder, that very moment, of God's faithfulness in yesterday, which is God's faithfulness in today and God's faithfulness for tomorrow. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Yes, we are one step from eternity. For surely we are. But there's friendships to be made, enemies to be forgiven, and stories to tell, and flashpoints of faith for each and every day. Fill your life, WG, a reminder even today with two memorials this last week. 
both powerful and very different in their own right. Fill your life with the swords of Goliath. Let God show his victory to you in your life. Do not be crippled by fear and unbelief and the fear of men, but take great steps of faith because fortune favors the brave. Spiritual fortune, eternal wealth. Jump out of the crowd like that woman and grab the tassel of Jesus and be healed. That's what I see here. That's what I saw Tuesday night. And that's what I bring back tonight to us on Saturday. We can never get away from the reality we're moving toward eternity, which means all the more reason to live life to the very fullest. Expanding the kingdom of friendships for eternity, forgiving those who throw spears at us, and grabbing that sword of Goliath, going like, you know what? Even on your darkest day, when you got Goliath's sword, you go like, you know, it's a good memory, and no one can take it from me. And I'm going to go act like a madman in the gates of the Philistines next week. But the reminder of God's faithfulness is by my side.